Good morning. Aren't we so thankful for Taylor and all her serving? Come on. That's good. And she'll probably greet you on the way out and give you a cup of coffee because she does everything around here. So it's good. It's good. Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I am the director of Chi Alpha. Chi Alpha is our ministry to college students here in the Cedar Valley. And I have the wonderful privilege of continuing our sermon series that we're going over this summer through the book of Philippians. So if you remember from last week, we left off with the imprisoned Paul saying that to die would be to gain. Saying he had to choose between continuing to live and plant churches, or to die and go be with Jesus, he would probably rather go die and be with Jesus, but for the sake of his friends around the world, he guesses he'll continue living. What a Paul and leader that is for us to look to. So he says that, and then he also goes on to say, with this, I'm actually going to rejoice in whatever I'm doing. No matter what happens, I'm going to find joy. And then we continue on in what we're going to read this morning, which is Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and it says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Our sermon title this morning is Enemy Kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for all you're doing this morning, God. Thank you for the ways you've moved, this, even just already this morning, God. And we pray that you'll speak. We love you. Amen and amen. When you look at the world around you, would you describe it as friendly to the kingdom of God? Do you think it's easy to follow Jesus living in our current cultural climate? Does living like Jesus make you feel like you're going with or against the grain of the world? If you're honest with yourself, does it always feel like Jesus is actually in charge of culture? Or sometimes does it seem like you're living in an enemy kingdom? I don't think we'd ever want to say this out loud as good Christians, right? We're like, yes, Jesus is on the throne. But sometimes, just once in a while, does it feel like Jesus may not actually be on the throne of culture? So last weekend, my wife Taylor and I went to a Taylor Swift concert in Minneapolis. Yes, we did. My very pregnant wife and I went to a Taylor Swift concert. It's going to be good. It was a wild experience. But to put this lightly, it was an eye-opening experience for me. As soon as we step out of the parking garage, there's a ton of people walking to this concert. This concert had around 60,000 people at it, and they were doing another concert the next night. And I swear, every person at this concert was wearing a sequin dress. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it's like sparkles up the wazoo. They're all shining, like it was blinding your eyes everywhere you were walking. I, it was extravagant. As we walked to this concert, I started to have some realizations about my life. It really makes you think a lot when you're walking. As I looked at the people around me, I realized they really liked Taylor Swift. They wanted to copy her. They wanted to be like her. They wanted to worship her. This is a quote. I heard one girl say, I can't believe we get to breathe the same air as Taylor. And then another girl says, I can't believe we're in the same state as Taylor. And I'm just sitting in the elevator like, hmm, this is interesting. Where am I right now? <laughs> then we get up to our seats, and I start looking around, and it's full. This is the Viking Stadium. It's jam-packed. And I look around, and I'm, I'm making a thought. See, well, I'm a 26-year-old man, okay? I'm not the typical Taylor Swift fan. As I looked around, I was surrounded by teenage girls 
And I realized, I think I'm sticking out like a sore thumb right now. It's like the girl next to me is like a six-year-old girl, then Taylor, then like a 15-year-old girl, and they're all dancing, and I'm just sitting there. Like, hi, I'm here too. (laughs) See, the world that I lived in for that four-hour concert was a world of sparkles, femininity, hero worship, loud singing, terrible dancing, and a lot of teenage girls. To say that I didn't know quite how to act would be an understatement. I was like, do I need to go change? I was just wearing a t-shirt. I'm like, do I need to go get a dress on or sequin or something? Like, I'm not sparkling enough for this. So I was like, should I start freaking out? I was like, do I not realize where I'm at right now? I think it's not impacting me as much as it should. Like, I should be hyperventilating because of how big of a deal this was. I get to breathe the same air of Taylor Swift. I'm like, hmm, never thought about that. That's a big deal, I guess. How was I supposed to act in this little, not really actually little, large Taylor Swift kingdom? I was not at home as a grown man in a teenage girl's dream world. And I think a lot of us have to deal with this same question. How are we to live when the world around us is quite a bit different from us? Specifically, when we look at our lives as Jesus followers, how do we live when the world around us doesn't quite line up with the teachings of Jesus? What do we do when we feel like we don't fit in? The Philippians had to wrestle with this. See, the church in Philippi that Paul was writing this letter that we're reading this morning to, they definitely lived in the middle of an enemy kingdom. Philippi was a proud Roman colony. Most of the population of that city was retired Roman soldiers. This city was known for its patriotic nationalism. They were, again, a part of this huge Roman empire, and they were proud to be a part of it. And they weren't just Roman by name. They were proud Roman people. So when I think of the Philippians, to give you some context, I like to think of my Uncle Rod. My Uncle Rod is very proud to be an American. He's not just an American. He's proud to be an American, where at least he knows he's free. That American flag flies high all around his property, and he's like, everywhere you look, it's like, boom, American flag, boom, American flag. It starts hitting you with the pole. Just kidding, he doesn't quite do that. I remember when I was a kid, I walked outside, and he pulled up to my house to take me to ice cream, and it was in a monster truck with an American flag on it. That's not an exaggeration. It was legit a monster truck. And I was kind of startled. I'm not very manly. I wasn't like, yeah, monster trucks. I'm like, oh, gosh, I have to climb into that. This will see how this goes. And also, I'll be honest, I don't really hang out with my Uncle Rod. I'm like, why is this guy here to take me to ice cream? I haven't talked to him in like three years. Every time I talk to him, he just tells me why I'm not manly enough. Change your oil. I'm like, I'm 12. I don't know how, okay? But I'm getting this monster truck, and we're singing country music, and he just is a proud American. I'm not lying. He was literally born on the 4th of July. That's not an exaggeration. His birthday's in like two days. I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. Rod is a proud American. The Philippians... They were proud Romans. They were loyal to the empire. They were loyal to their emperor. So in the middle of this proud Roman colony, there's a little church. A church that was trying to be different from the empire. A church that bowed to a different king. They lived in an enemy kingdom. They were loyal to Christ, but surrounded by Caesar. And Paul is writing the Philippians, telling them, this is how you live in the middle of an enemy kingdom. He says, this is how you live knowing that it might look like Caesar is king, but you believe Jesus is king. So Paul starts by telling him this in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A better translation of this verse from the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in is to say to only behave as citizens worthy. As citizens worthy, as citizens. In the Roman Empire, citizenship would have been extremely important. 
It's what gave you value as a Roman. Something that made the colony of Philippi so proud was that most of them who lived there were actual Roman citizens. So a lot of the Roman Empire were just like conquered by Rome, and they were just like peasants who had to serve the Roman Empire. But the people in Philippi were actual citizens of the empire. They weren't just ruled. They were a part of the empire. They were citizens, which meant deep things to them. And Paul is telling them that they're actually citizens of something greater than the kingdom of Rome. They are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that is what matters to them. And this would have been the prevailing question to this church in Philippi, this proud Roman colony. It would have said, who are you going to bow to? Will you bow to Jesus or Caesar? Paul is telling them that if they truly want to be a part of the kingdom of God, they must bow only to Jesus, which means to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. See, Paul doesn't give them a long list of to-dos or rules to follow or religious practices. No, he basically says, if you want to follow Jesus, what you got to do? You need to be like Jesus. That's it. You bow to the king. To bow to Jesus means to be like Jesus. Jesus is the be-all, end-all. If you want to act like a citizen of the Jesus empire, then you need to act like Jesus. And then and only then will you be worthy of the gospel of Christ. All Christian behavior boils not down to rules, but to a person. We are to model our lives after the person of Jesus and bow to him. We can say all we want, that I bow to Jesus. But our words don't actually prove much. Our actions show who we bow to. Think of a real royal person. When you encounter a king or queen, you don't go up to him and say, long live the king, I bow to you. No, you get on your knees and you start bowing to them, right? You can't just say it with your mouth. That would be disrespectful. You bow. Our actions, our bowing, that shows where our true citizenship lies. So Paul is telling the Philippians, they got to choose what's important to them their Roman citizenship, or their heavenly citizenship. If they truly want to bow to the king, they need to live a life worthy of said king. And this is the same place we're all in. We are surrounded by a world that does not bow to Jesus. We live in a world that bows to the idols of success, pleasure, self. And we as Jesus followers, we live in the middle of both of these kingdoms, We have the kingdom of God in our hearts, but the kingdom of the world around us. And we are called to live as citizens in the kingdom of God while physically being in this world. And that can be hard sometimes, right? Paul is telling us in this passage that even though we're surrounded by what seems like enemy territory, we cannot succumb to the enemy empire. We must walk in a manner worthy of this call as Christians, no matter what the world looks like. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of Jesus? Paul tells us in Philippians 1.27, we are to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's giving them, and then us, three mandates for what it looks like to actually walk like Jesus. First, Paul tells them to stand firm for truth. Paul's communicating to the Philippians that they were not to get their convictions from the Roman Empire. They were not to let the world around them define their truth. And the same applies today. Where do we get our convictions from? Do we let our convictions come from Jesus or from culture? The question is, will you stand for the truth of Jesus even when it's challenging? Even when it offends the people around you? Even when it makes you uncomfortable? We as Jesus followers are to find our truth solely from Jesus and what the Bible says. But it is so tempting, right, to want to compromise. It's hard to stand firm for truth. When what we believe goes against what the people around us think is right. 
but we are to fight this temptation. We as citizens of the heavenly kingdom get our truth again only from Jesus, and we stand firm in that. We cannot wave back and forth and not stand firm. We cannot wave back and forth with the feelings of the empire. No, we must decide that we are going to stand firm on the truth of King Jesus and that alone. And as you and I both know, there are some things as Jesus followers that we believe that are very contrary to our culture. Some things we believe are actually seen as offensive to the world around us. The world does not believe in absolute truth. And the foundation of who we are as Jesus followers is believing in an absolute truth of Jesus as king. So when we have this tension, it's going to cause conflict, right? When we're different from the world around us. But in the midst of conflict, in the midst of a world telling us that we can wave back and forth and you do you and I'll do me and you pick your own truth, you live your truth, we are to stand firm and say, no, I land for the truth the truth in the King Jesus. I bow to him, not my own desires. So we as Jesus followers are to stand firm on the truth of the gospel. And after Paul says to stand firm, he says we are to stand firm with one mind, striving together. So the second mandate is we are to walk in unified love. Stand firm for truth and walk in unified love. Which means we're to be unified, right? It's pretty simple. And I think as after you read the book of Philippians, it's clear that the church in Philippi had some division. Later on in this book that Pastor Daniel will teach us on sometime this summer, we get to read about two ladies who are fighting, and Paul says, calm down, stop fighting. You're making the rest of us uncomfortable. And it seems this church may have been struggling with unity. Paul charges them that they are to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, and to do so, you have to be unified. You're to work together side by side. We're to be unified with the church. And I think there's two contexts we can apply this in. So first, we must look internally to our local church. We're to be unified with the people in this room. Look around. This is your local church. If you call this place home, you're stuck with us. I'm sorry. You chose it, not us. You're here. We are called as a local church to have unity. Clearly, Paul believed in this. So if there's someone in here that you're having conflict with, you are called to resolve said conflict. But we live in an Iowa culture, right? And I grew up born and raised in Iowa, Iowa proud. And our Iowa culture tells us if there's something wrong inside, you put it under the rug. For the sake of kindness, don't act like it's there. You might have deep bitterness with you that you take to your grave. That's okay. Just don't fight about it. Don't you dare offend anyone. You don't bring up what's in your heart. No, we bury those things. Iowa nice, baby, am I right? No, for the sake of kindness, we're like, I'll never talk about my feelings, but it's okay. Hi. Good to see you. No, that's not what we're to do. That is not the way of Jesus. We're to be unified, which might mean having some hard, difficult conversations. Might mean to be honest with the people you love. So I encourage you, if there's disunity between you and someone else in the church, talk to them about it. Process together. Unity does not mean bearing your feelings Unity means being willing to have conflict, but knowing that no matter what happens, you're going to love them on the other side of it. That is unity. We are to be a unified church on our mission to love the Cedar Valley. But this goes bigger than just our local church. We're also to be unified with the global church. We're to be unified with other Jesus followers. Even if they go to a different church, even if they have some varying beliefs, we should be the number one fans of the other churches here in the Cedar Valley because we are all unified under the main cause of Christ. Yes, we may disagree on worship styles, we may disagree on doctrine, but we are to be unified. As Jesus himself, one of his few prayers in the Bible is in John 17, he prayed for the church to be unified. Also, newsflash, that's one of Jesus' prayers that went unanswered. Let's be a part of answering that prayer by being a unified church here in the Cedar Valley. 
And this idea of striving side by side, working together, gives us a beautiful picture of the church. Because the church is not about hierarchy. The church is not about getting ahead. It's about proving we're right, about being proving that we can do it on our own. No, we're to work together. The church should never be a place about me. The church should never be about me getting what I want, me getting to serve on what team I want, me getting to be in the spotlight, me getting noticed, me getting my way, my preferences, my worship songs, my sermons. No, the church is not about me. The church is the place where we choose to die to self, die to preferences, die to exalting ourselves and becoming the number one dream team member to lower ourselves and serve. The church is about the church, not about me. The church is not about us individually. It's about the collective group striving together for the cause of Christ, working side by side, not one in front of the other, but side by side for Jesus. And that's how we reflect who Jesus was. Paul continues on to take this idea of walking in a manner worthy of the calling. He actually takes it further in a different letter he wrote. So while Paul was in prison, he actually wrote four letters, and one of these letters was Philippians, one we're reading today. Another one was Ephesians, written to the church of Ephesus. And that letter was written very close in time to the, church, the letter we're reading today. I think the letter to Ephesus was written a little bit earlier, but they're probably written very close to each other. So what we read connects Paul's ideas together, because Paul is in one mind writing them. So in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Huh, we've read that before, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It seems like unity may have been important to Paul. And he's telling us right here how to walk in unity. He says we need to walk with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We are to be humble people, patient and gentle with each other. That is how we will find unity. Let me be straight with you, though. This is really hard, right? This is challenging because maybe I'm just the sinful pastor, but I think people can be frustrating sometimes. Sometimes people bother me. I'm just being honest with you. I am far from perfect in this. I'm going to confess, sometimes I get upset with people. It happens, specifically my siblings, but I love them. Just kidding. My brother is an older pastor. So as an example of this, not my siblings, but just last Monday, our church, we have a softball team, and we were playing a team last Monday, a team that we had beaten the very week before by a ton of runs. And so I came into the last Monday softball game expecting to maybe hit a couple dingers, which actually meant like I'd hit a single and get on once. That'd be great for me. I'm not very good at this game. But I expected us to roll over the other team and have a good Monday night, maybe get some four queens afterwards. <laughs> After a couple innings, we were down 13 to three to the team that we destroyed the week before, and I was ticked. I hate losing more than anything in the world. It should be sin and then losing, but it's losing and then sin. I hate losing. So I start getting a little fired up. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little mad internally at our local church, at our softball team. Like, come on, guys, stick together. No more errors. Let's start hitting. I mean, I can't hit, but I expect them to do it, okay? And so I get a little mad at them. But then that turns to, like, positivity and getting us pumped up. So we're getting pumped up. We start rallying, and we come back. We scored eight runs the next inning, and ooh, that was a good inning. I had fun with that. Everyone on our team got on base except one guy who got out twice, but we will leave him nameless. He's not here this morning. We ended up, he's the best player on the team, so it's fine. But we end up going into the last inning, and we're tied up. And then the other team gets three runs in the top of the inning. I'm a little mad at our team again. I'm like, come on, guys. 
But then our team comes up to bat. We score one run, two runs, three runs. We're tied up, and then Sam Childers, who's back in the sound booth, hits in Alex Eid, another guy in our church, and we come back and we won. And I start jumping up. I'm screaming because I'm pretty excited. I think Frank the Tank back there was really excited. I want to like <laughs> chest bump him, then I'd fall over because he's strong. But I'm pumped up, kind of getting a little too excited. And see, the other team we were playing, see, they're another church here in the Cedar Valley, and that team hadn't won a game yet this year, and so they still haven't. And so looking back, I'm like, that probably wasn't the most loving thing to do. They're over there crushed. They almost got their first win. And we beat them like, ha-ha, we dominated you, son. (laughs) I wanted to destroy them. I wasn't feeling a sense of unified love on Monday night, to be honest. I'm like, local churches for Jesus, we love each other, go God, pray. No, I'm like, you just got destroyed. Ha, let's go, baby. Sometimes it can be hard to walk in unifying love, right? It can happen. But as Jesus follows, we at least got to strive. So I repented. I probably won't confess to that team. I won't see him again. But I repent to you, church. And I'll probably do the same thing next Monday, but it's fine. We as a church are to find this beautiful blend, right? We are supposed to find both standing firm for truth, but also walking in unified love. That's our call as Jesus followers. We're to find this beautiful blend of both. If you want to put that picture up, Katie, there should be a diagram. That Oh, that's a good diagram. Lucy made this. Let's give Lucy a round of applause. She's great. Yes. Yes. All right. So this is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. See, Jesus did not shy away from hard truth for the sake of love. No, Jesus stood up for holiness. Jesus stood up for righteousness. Jesus never backed away from the word of God. Jesus never acted like other things were okay just to love people. No, he stood firm for truth. What God says goes. Jesus stood from the truth. But at the same time, while standing firm for truth, he also loved people unconditionally. He loved people enough to eat with sinners, to spend time with the least of these, to spend time with people farthest from God. The people farthest from God were the people physically closest to Jesus. Jesus loved people while also standing firm for truth at the same time. I think in our cultural climate, we like to do one or the other. We want to be all truth or all love, but we got to be both. We cannot be someone who stands up and posts on Facebook, I love Jesus and sinners are going not to heaven, and then like not love people, right? No. We stand firm for truth. We can say this is what the Bible says. This is the word of God. But also we must love people who disagree with us. We stand firm for truth, but we don't hate people who don't do that. No, the true call of a Jesus follower is to be all truth and all love. We can't pick which side of the coin makes us feel better about ourselves or which one's easier for us. Because I know for some of us, it's easier to stand firm for truth. I'll be honest, that one's me. Like, for me, I'm like, yeah, the truth, that's what the Bible says, you better do it. But then, like, my big brother's like, Derek, you gotta be a little bit more loving. Like, maybe smile a little bit when you say those things. So I'm trying, hi, I'm smiling, see? But we also can't be all love and no truth. Like, everything's okay, I promise. It's all going to be good. You don't actually have to follow Jesus. No, that's not love. True love is saving people's souls from hell. And that means speaking the truth sometimes. See, amen, the church agrees with me. Stand firm for truth. It's good. (laughs) Amen and amen. We must be full of truth and full of love. But there is one final piece of the equation for Jesus. Jesus stood firm for truth. He loved people, but he also lived a lifestyle of holiness. See, this diagram shows the intersection of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. We want to go for that middle part right there. Because Jesus' words only had power because his lifestyle was also godly. 
Jesus didn't just stood, stand firm for truth, he lived truth. In order for us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must live a lifestyle of holiness. That means running from sin and pursuing Jesus. I think in our culture, we like to think of holiness as a nice add-on. That's something that the early church did, but we don't really have to, we don't have to be extreme. We don't be legalist, right? I don't need to actually like not lie. That's legalism, right? Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. No, holiness is not an add-on. Holiness is necessary to the life of following Jesus. And I understand this tension because it was my story growing up. See, I grew up in the church, and when I was growing up, I did all the right things, so I appeared to live a lifestyle of holiness, but my heart was not in the right place. I did it from a sense of pride, which is not holy. So I wasn't living a holy lifestyle because my heart was in all the wrong places. And then eventually that inward impurity turned into outward impurity. My senior year of high school, I got a girlfriend, and we started crossing sexual boundaries. So I would stand for truth. I would talk about how I was a Christian. I would get mad at my friends for cussing and for drinking, while at the same time, I wasn't living a holy lifestyle behind closed doors. How does that make sense? And then my friends would call me a hypocrite because I would say to them, hey, I love Jesus, but they knew what I was doing with my girlfriend. That ruined my witness because I wasn't living a holy lifestyle that I talked. My friends, still to this day, I think what I did back then kind of hurt that view of them. Like, wait, you're a pastor now? I know what you did back in high school. That stings, right? These things, they stick with you. People don't forget what they see you doing. Yes, there's grace in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. But our actions have consequences. We are called to live a holy lifestyle. That is how we are witness. We cannot stand firm for truth, but then also blend into the culture around us. Holiness. Holiness is central to walking with Jesus. Not that we will achieve perfection, but we are to strive to live a godly life where we run from sin. That is what it means to live a life of walking like Jesus. We stand for truth. We love the people around us. And then we live a lifestyle that is godly. We stand for truth. We love the people around us. And we live a lifestyle that is holy. The more we love people, and the more we serve people, the more opportunities we will have to show them the love of Jesus. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? As we love people and then live a lifestyle that is patient and kind and gentle and loving, then and only then will we get opportunities to show people that Jesus is the reason we're that way. I think too often we want to start with truth, but we need to start with love and holiness and then truth will just come its way in. We don't start with, this is why I'm a Christian. No, we show them why we're a Christian, and then our words will come after. We are to preach Jesus and serve people. Preach Jesus and serve people. Speak truth, show love, and be holy. That's the way of Jesus. That is how you live in the enemy's kingdom. In the Star Wars franchise, which I'll admit, I only started watching a year ago, but I'm going to try my best here. In the Star Wars franchise, Anakin Skywalker starts his journey being recruited, and he's trained by a Jedi. The Jedi are the good guys of the universe, I learned not so long ago. I've been told I'm way behind the times or something anyways. But on this journey, Anakin has his ups and his downs, but he trains as a good guy, and all is going okay. Eventually, though, this character Anakin starts to be influenced by the enemy. See, he lived in the middle of an enemy empire. The literal empire, that's what they're called, is controlled by the Sith. And Anakin lives amidst this enemy empire. And in the middle of the enemy... Anakin starts to look more and more like the enemy. He starts acting less like Jedi, and he starts acting more like the dark side. This eventually leads him to start 
acting even more like the dark side as he attacks the Jedi. And he starts doing evil things. See, part of the reason Anakin turns to the dark side, turns to the enemy, is because he's scared that his wife is dying. And he thinks this is the way he can save her. Fear drives Anakin to start being like the enemy. See, while Anakin is surrounded by the enemy and being influenced by the enemy, he gives into his fear and he changes who he is because of it. He was living in an enemy kingdom, and instead of staying true to who he was as a Jedi, he starts to blend into the enemy and become like them. The question we have to ask ourselves is how will you respond when you're living in the middle of the enemy kingdom? This is the reason we do Chi Alpha, because the college campus is an enemy kingdom, and we live to be the good guys in the middle of the enemy's territory. That's the reason I have a job, so I'm thankful for enemy kingdoms. But <laughs> the Philippians had this same question. They were asking, how can I follow Jesus while living in the middle of the proud Roman Empire? And we're trying to live as Jesus followers in a world that doesn't look much like Jesus. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how are you going to respond? Will you be like Anakin and respond with fear? Verse 28 of our passage says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Because in the middle of the enemy kingdom, it is easy to be frightened. It's easy to be scared. See, in our current cultural climate, we aren't usually fearful of like physical persecution or being harmed. It's more of a psychological fear we have. Maybe you're here and you fear being different. You fear not being liked. Maybe you have this question, if I actually live like Jesus, what would my friends think of me? Would people think different of me if I stopped doing some things or started doing other things? Maybe you're scared of what the people around you think. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you're like, no, I don't give a rip what anyone thinks about me. Maybe you're more afraid of something else. Maybe you're not afraid of bowing to someone else's king, but you're also afraid of bowing to Jesus' king because you want to be king. And you're afraid of giving up autonomy of your life. Maybe you're scared of giving up complete control because you want to be able to do whatever you want. And that's what you fear. Maybe you ask yourself this question, what would my life look like if I actually gave up that sin? Maybe you're too scared. God has been asking you to give something up, but you're just terrified of the prospect because you don't understand what your life would look like without that sin. Or maybe you're scared, what would my life look like if I gave more money away and I was generous? How would I provide for myself? You don't have to. God will provide for you. Or what will my life look like if I give up time and get up earlier for Jesus? I need my beauty sleep. Jesus is like, I'll make you more beautiful in the prayer closet, baby. You don't need beauty sleep. Get up and spend time with Jesus. See, I think we, most of us, if you're here in a church, you want some life change, right? That's the reason you're here. But I think sometimes we're actually scared of what it takes to have said life change. We say we want to be like Jesus, but do we act like Jesus? What Paul's telling us is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of man. There's only one that we should fear, and that is a fear of the Lord. Being a Jesus follower means we must develop a healthy fear of the Lord that will lead to holiness. An understanding of the holiness and the goodness of God should cause us to fear a little bit. Let me explain. First of all, it says it all the time throughout the Bible that I have a healthy fear of the Lord. But this fear is not like a trembling, like, oh my gosh, you're going to smite me. No. This fear is being in awe of who God is. Think about if you met your like worldly hero, someone that you really look up to. For me, it's LeBron James. I look up to him a lot. If I met LeBron, I'd be a little nervous, right? I'd be a little scared. I'm not going to be like, what's up, LeBron? You're my homeboy. No, LeBron's not my homeboy, just like Jesus isn't your homeboy, okay? No, he's LeBron James. He's the king of basketball. Jesus is the king of the world. He's not your homeboy. No, there should be an awe of them. If I met LeBron James, I'd be like, hello, sir. Yes, Mr. LeBron. Thank you so much for your service, right? 
When we meet Jesus, there should be a sense of awe because we don't want to look like a fool around them. No, our relationship with God should lead us to be in awe of the beauty of God, of the power of God, of the goodness of God should cause us to change because we're so in awe of who and how good this God is that we can't help but listen to him. When we fail to walk in holiness, I would argue it's because we do not have a high enough view of God or a healthy enough fear of who he is. I want you to picture this. I want you to go back to medieval times, and I want you to think of a real-life kingdom. I want you to imagine that an enemy kingdom, they come and capture you from your kingdom, and they put you in prison in their kingdom. And you're in prison surrounded by enemy soldiers, and you have two choices. You can either start acting like the enemy, or you can stay true to your kingdom. And your response is going to depend on your view of your own king. If you have a healthy view of your king, and if you know while in the middle of the enemy prison that your king is bigger and better, he's got a bigger army, he's way more powerful than this king, and that you know when this king comes a knocking, you're getting rescued and going right back home. If you have a healthy view of this king as bigger and greater than anything of this enemy, you're not going to blend into the enemy, right? You're like, no, 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 my king's coming. You just wait. Just hold on a couple seconds, because when my king's coming, I'll be fine. You're not going to start trembling around that enemy because you're like, ha, I don't care how big you think you are. My king's got the biggest army in the world. But if we don't view our king that way, we might give in to fear and cower to this enemy king because you don't know your king is greater. See, in the middle of the enemy, we should have such a reverence for our king and understanding that we serve a victor God that our God is a conquering king, not a defeated king, but the conquering king, that even though we live in the enemy's territory, we don't bow to the enemy king because we know our king's a coming and he's way bigger than the enemy's king. But I think a temptation, specifically in the global church today, is to try and blend in with the world as much as possible. We want to take on the world's ideologies. We don't want to stand up for holiness. We want to act like everything's okay and try to blend in as much with culture because we think the way I'm going to change culture is by being as much like them but sprinkling in a little bit of Jesus. But that's not reality. Because imagine this. You live your life where you're in enemy territory of the world and you blend into the world. You live a lot like the world. You look kind of like everyone else. But then we meet Jesus and Jesus comes at the end of our days and we tell him, Jesus, I stood for you. Jesus, I was on your side. I walked in your manner, Jesus. I was on team Jesus. And then Jesus is going to ask us, then why did you never act like it? Doing that would be like Anakin Skywalker acting like, you know what, being on the dark side is not too bad. Him being okay with a little bit of evil. I don't want to rock the boat and like tick off the dark side, so I'm not going to stand up for the Jedi or say that the dark side, what they're doing is evil, even though they're killing people. Also, maybe this leads to Anakin doing some dark sidey things. Like, maybe I'll kill some people. We'll see how that goes. He doesn't live like a Jedi. His life doesn't look anything like the good guys. He blended in completely the dark side. But then a Jedi leader, like Yoda or someone else comes, and Anakin be like, oh, no, 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 Yoda, 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 Yoda. I know I, like, acted like I was on the dark side, but I wasn't on the dark side. I just acted the way they did. I just participated in all the activities they did. Yeah, I never acted like a Jedi, but I still want to be a Jedi. I'm still Team Jedi. I got Jedi 316 tattooed on my bicep. I'm ready to go. No. If we want to be Jesus followers, we kind of need to act like it. 
We must walk in a manner worthy of the title of Jesus follower. We must realize that it is an honor to bow to King Jesus. It is an honor that we do not deserve. We don't deserve to be Jesus followers. And that recognition of the goodness of God and the lowliness of ourselves should lead us to be full of so much gratitude that we will do whatever we can to please Jesus and to be like him. Which again comes back from a healthy fear of the Lord, that he is so good. Because our fear of the Lord should diminish our fear of the empire. Because here is reality. Reality is we are in an enemy's empire. We are surrounded by a culture in a world that does not look like Jesus. But we must not cower in fear to it. We cannot run and hide from the world. We can't hide away as a Jesus sect. Like, we'll just hide up here on our literal hill in Cedar Valley, and we'll love Jesus, but then hide away from all the other people. The reason we cannot do that is because not only do we live in an enemy empire, but we live in an enemy empire with a mission. See, we're not in the middle of the enemy empire just trying to stay true to our king until we die and hold on. No, we are sent to the enemy empire to change it. We are not called to blend into the world. We are called to change the world. We are called to help the world look more like Jesus, not vice versa. We don't change an empire by being scared of it. We don't change an empire by running away from it. We do not change an empire by blending in with it. No, we change the empire by standing up and being different from it. Paul tells us this. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we are to stand firm for truth, be unified, be like the example of Jesus. And if we do this, it'll be a sign to the world of who Jesus is. Philippians 1.28 says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Our lifestyles are a sign to the world around us. If we want to change the world, we do so not by trying to look as much like it as possible and then throw a little bit of Jesus on the side. No, we change our world by living so much like Jesus that our lifestyle demands an explanation. We change our world by being bold for the cause of Christ. This generation, I spend all my day with the next generation, they don't want you to just tell them everything they're doing is okay and say, it's okay, keep being like the way you want and then add religious practices on the side. No, they want someone to say, no, this is how you live like the king. They want someone who will boldly proclaim what the truth of the gospel is. We are to stand firm for our God and not to be frightened by the enemy because the enemy can do nothing because my king's coming and he's so much better than this world. The question Paul was asking the church in Philippi is how are you going to live in the heart of the Roman Empire, in the middle of a proud Roman people? And this is the question we have to ask ourselves today. How are you going to live in the enemy's kingdom? Are you going to be holy? Or are you going to waver in your character when no one's watching? Are you going to stand firm for truth? Or be so scared of offending the enemy that you don't stand against it? Are you going to choose unity or division? We live in a world of division, right? We love to argue and bow to the almighty donkey or elephant, but Jesus is telling us you're to bow to the king. And we choose amidst our differences, we only bow to one. We are a unified church. And we work together for his empire, not our own little empires. So I want you to zoom in on your own little world, your family, your place of work, your neighborhood, and ask yourself, how do you change your world? Well, the answer is very, very, very simple. We change our world through living like Jesus. As we live like Jesus, as we live holy lifestyles that are defined by love, we will change the world. Your family will be changed as they see you as a person of character that is also so full of grace for them. Your kids will be changed as you stand for truth and show them the way of Jesus and live like Jesus, not just on Sunday mornings, but 
at the dinner table and when you're at home, your kids don't give a rip what you act like on Sunday mornings. They care what you act like on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights and Friday nights. But as you live like Jesus constantly, but then show them so much grace when they mess up, that'll be an example to your family of what it looks like to follow Jesus. When you serve your family with joy, your workplace will be changed to see you're different from them. When your workplace is complaining about your boss and complaining about your job, like life is horrible, and you refrain, and you're positive and amidst a world of negativity, and you're joyful and uplifting, and at the same time, the hardest working employee at the company, and you're not doing that just to earn something, but you're doing that simply because you love Jesus, and you're not doing things for your job just to impress others and to get ahead, but again, to simply be like Jesus when you do that, that will change your workplace. If you preach Jesus but don't act like it, your coworkers will notice. If you preach Jesus but then complain about your boss, don't work hard, show up 15 minutes late, they're not going to listen to you. But if you live like Jesus and then tell them about Jesus, they'll get to see Jesus. If you live like Jesus and walk like him, your actions will preach Jesus. They will show the empire around you that you do not bow to the same king. The main idea this morning is to change the enemy empire. You must stand for truth, walk in unified love, and live a lifestyle of holiness. Think back to that Venn diagram, truth, love, holiness. And in the middle, that's where we seek to be. And Paul ends our passage this morning by telling us that if we do choose to bow to Jesus, it's going to come at a cost. It says in Philippians 1, 29-30, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What Paul is saying is living like Jesus will lead to suffering. It will lead to persecution. In their context, that meant physical suffering. It meant they were beaten or possibly killed for their faith. And that's not our context, right? No, what Paul is telling us today is that even though we bow to Jesus, that does not guarantee us a perfect life. Life will still be hard because we're still in the middle of the enemy's empire. There is evil in the world, and sometimes that's going to hurt. Bad things will happen that we will not be able to explain. Suffering and hardship are not negated by us being Jesus followers. What the Bible actually says is it might lead to more. But the beauty in all of this the beauty is that in the middle of suffering, we get to continue to let our lives be a reflection of the gospel of Christ because we do not suffer alone. Jesus himself was the chief among sufferers. Reality is that although we strive again and again to be like Jesus, to live a holy lifestyle, we will continue to come up short. Time and time again, our manner of life will not be worthy of the good news of Jesus. Our manner of life, the way you and I act, mean that you and I should be banished from God's kingdom. We should be sent to suffer in the enemy's kingdom for all of eternity. But Jesus. Jesus suffered on a cross. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus died for our sins. See, it appeared that Jesus had lost at the hands of the empire. Jesus was killed by the Roman Empire in the most brutal way imaginable. And it seemed that all was gone. But Jesus. See, Jesus then, after his death, he rose from the grave and he conquered all of our sins. 
he conquered the enemy's empire and created a way for us that even though we do not do these things perfectly, we do not stand firm for truth perfectly, we do not always show love, and we certainly don't live a holy lifestyle all the time, even though we screw up, we can still have relationship with God because of the sacrifice of King Jesus. We don't just serve a king who sits on a throne and says, bow to me. We serve a king who got off his throne and got on a tree for us. Jesus and his sacrificial love changed everything. The sacrificial love is the gospel of Christ that Paul is talking about in verse 27 that we're to be worthy of. It's a sacrificial love that brought the enemy empire to its knees. It was not violence, destruction, or weapons that killed the Roman Empire. It was a small group of people founded from this one man who loved people even though they didn't deserve it. This small group of people, which was the church, they destroyed the empire by simply living like their king. And now we get to do the same. You and I can stare into the face of the empire, the world around us that seems to be far from Jesus, and we can choose to not give into culture, to stand firm for truth, to stand for love and for unity, to stand for holiness. And as we do this, we will live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We will bring the world around us to its knees. It'll be on its knees, bowing to their new king. Stand with me, church. We're going to have a few minutes to respond here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, I want you to come up to the altar. If one of these three things resonated with you, if you ask, if you ask yourself and you're if honest, you haven't been standing firm for truth, and you've kind of been wavering and not sticking to the gospel of God, I want you to come to the altar and repent that to King Jesus and say, Jesus, I stand for your truth now. Or if you haven't been living a lifestyle of love and unity, and if you haven't been quite kind or patient or gentle with people around you, I want you to come to the altar and confess that to God. Or if you haven't been living a lifestyle of holiness, if there's a sin that Jesus has been asking you, your heart starts beating right now every time someone talks about sin because you know it's something you're supposed to be giving up years ago, but you still haven't, I want you to come and give it up to Jesus at the altar. So I'm going to pray. When I'm done, I want you to come to the altar if any of those three things apply to you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for your goodness, God. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect anymore, but that we get to love you and we get to be like you and bow to you, King. Jesus, I pray that we will be a church that is firm for the truth, that is unified in love, and is living a lifestyle of holiness. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If that is you, the prayer team will also be up front. If you want to go pray with someone, please come to the altar for one of those three things.